right, so episode 52 with Corey Peacock and Chris Algieri is about to start. And these two guys know their shit about nutrition. Both of them are really researched guys in the industry. And the cool thing about Chris is he's actually a really high-level kickboxer and boxer to the point where he actually fought Manny Pacquiao. So those people who don't know the boxing world, Manny Pacquiao is a pretty big name. And just the fact that Chris was able to stand in the rink with him and get punched by him in the face, which is pretty freaking awesome. So we're going to go into a lot of different stuff in this episode, like concussions, nutrition, supplements, and you're going to learn a lot. It's really sciencey, but it's a really good episode filled with a lot of good information. So let's get this thing started. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Cut the Shit, Get Fit. I'm your host, Rafael Matuszewski, and joining me today is, uh, it's going to be a little different because we got two guests for the first time on the show. So we have Corey Peacock and Chris Algieri. Say hello, you two. Hey guys, how you doing? Going on guys, Chris Algieri here. Uh, so to break the ice for the audience, can you tell them what you got planned for this weekend? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Chris and myself are certified uh, sports nutritionist through the International Society of Sports Nutrition. And we are currently in Phoenix, Arizona at the annual conference. Um, you know, a lot of good speakers here, a lot of good topics, um, a really invasive group in sports nutrition. Awesome. So who's speaking at the conference? Man, there's a lot of people. <laughs> Myself. <laughs> nice. Good lineup. <laughs> Got a presentation this evening, uh, small data segment on mixed martial arts and body composition bone mineral density um things of that um jose antonio will be speaking on and off he's the ceo and founder of the issn um protein guru creatine guru uh, a lot of great people out here speaking awesome uh so for the audience for both of you you guys can like take turns to answer these questions but um can you tell the audience who you are what you guys do and how did you first get into the industry uh sure uh so again this is Corey. i'll, I'll start with this um you know i have a doctorate in exercise physiology um throughout my education um i've worked as a strength and conditioning coach um Moving into the professional world, um, I work currently with a lot of the elite combat uh, fight sport athletes. Chris, obviously, somebody I work with, um, along with a lot of mixed martial artists and UFC fighters. So currently, you know, probably I would say I have about 20, 20 fighters or so that I'm training as a performance coach, strength and conditioning, nutritionist, uh, you know, jack of all trades when it comes to that. And uh, Chris here, Chris Algieri. I'm a former two-time world kickboxing champion and a former one-time world boxing champion, uh, currently junior welterweight contender in boxing. And um, I started studying nutrition basically for my own, my own career, uh, kind of used myself as a case study and um, decided to, to expand my knowledge and, and uh, put myself through school. And uh, it's kind of expanded into working with other athletes. I'm currently the performance nutrition coach over at uh, Stony Brook University on Long Island. Uh, we're a D1 program, and I oversee the nutrition of over 350 athletes currently. 
Wow, that's awesome. Um, so actually, this will be a question for both of you because, uh, like, the concussion topic has been kind of bouncing around our industry for a while. And I was wondering what your guys' opinion in, like, say, in the UFC and also in the boxing world, do you think those two organizations are doing enough to kind of make sure that the athletes are safe when it comes to concussions and things like that? You know, the concussion debate has been a, a, a kind of a big buzzword the past couple of years, you know, starting out with the NFL and everything um, and, you know, going into to, to younger age groups, and younger athletes. Um, and it's something that it's very difficult to, to get a handle on in combat sports because the whole point of our sport is, is to hurt each other. And, um, you know, so I think the, the most important thing to do for, for those sports is really just the, the pre-screening process and, and, and what athletes and fighters have to do in order to get a license to be able to, to compete. Um, it, boxing is different than MMA. MMA is a, is a um, the, the organizations are, um, there's less of them, they're smaller, um, and it, they kind of have, they're more unified in, in the way that they go about those kinds of things. Uh, boxing is, is different in, in the United States. It's state per state. So each state has their own regulations on what the uh, pre-fight screening is in order to get your license. So, for example, New York, and um, and California and New Jersey have very very uh, strict rules about what kind of um, medical requirements are are, are are done before a fight uh, can ever happen. But then there are other states like in, in you know in the kind of like the Bible Belt area you know places like Georgia and North Carolinas and the Virginias that uh, their commissions aren't as strict with who they'll allow fight. So a lot of guys who are, who are denied in one state will just jump up, jump the border and go fight somewhere else. Hmm, okay. Um, have, Chris, have you ever like dealt with a concussion yourself? And if so, did what was kind of your process to get back into fighting? Um, yeah, so I, I probably my first concussion was probably when I was about 16 years old uh, when I was uh, kickboxing. And um, it's just one of those things that are really hard to, to, to really – judge if you've ever had one um you know but sometimes you just you really just know it uh i remember i, I was i was 16 i was sparring and i got i got kicked in the head and um I don't, I don't remember anything i pretty much woke up a few hours later um still was going on i still i was sparring i was still sparring the rest of that round um i was a martial artist at the time and we were out having you know our class afterwards and then i just remember waking up talking mid-sentence you know just sitting after 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 the training session just kind of talking and i realized like wow i just i don't know what happened the last you know hour um Jeez. so and that was that was probably the only time that's ever happened to me like that um but from then on it just kind of i mean i was young and dumb i didn't really you know think too much about it i was like oh, whatever you know i got i got wrong um thinking back now you know i probably should have been uh, a lot more cautious about what i did you know after that in order to recover properly now, what would be like some advice you would give out parents there? Because uh, like nowadays, parents are trying to live through their kids, through their sport. And sometimes, you know, if a kid gets hit, say in football or whatever sport they're playing, and you could tell something's off with them, but their parents are like, oh, just go back in, you'll be fine. Like what kind of advice would you give parents or like what kind of education would you want them to know to make sure their kids are safe? This is probably something Corey deals with more with, you know, uh, all the fighters that he oversees. Sure, so. yeah. Well, you know, I think it's something that needs to be taken very seriously. Um, I think when you look at the infrastructure, you know, in organized sports from the professional level all the way down to kind of what you're speaking of with the children and parents, there has to be a good supporting staff there 
from the athletic training standpoint, from a physical therapy standpoint, from a medical standpoint, and those kind of things. So I think as a parent, you need to be able to step away from that and separate yourself from, you know, your kid's um, athletic career from that standpoint and allow the medical professionals to do what they are designated to do and what they're educated to do a little bit more properly. Um, I think in my role working with these fighters, um, I think that's something that I've had to really, you know, take charge of in terms of even looking at like the concussion monitoring and the things that we're kind of doing. Um, we're, we're doing a little bit of brain scanning, um, and, and things like that with, with our fighters. And I think our coaches have really kind of bought into the idea to allow me and some of the other medical professionals to take care of that and trust in what we're, what we're kind of doing and what we've been educated to do. So, um, you know, I guess if that, the question, you know, what is my advice? It's definitely separate yourself and allow the the supporting staff coaches and, and those people around your children to, to really take care of your, the athletes and allow them to do what they're supposed to do. Now, like that being said, like with parents nowadays, like hoping that their kids are going to make pro in anything that they do, like, it, have you ever had an experience where you had to train a younger kid and you could totally tell that he was not into the sport? He was like burnt out. Like, did you ever have to have a situation like sitting down with the parents and chatting with them or anything like that? You know, I, I don't know, Chris, maybe um, myself. I haven't really worked with a youthful, youthful group. Um, everybody I've worked with is collegiate or professional at this point. So I really haven't had to deal with that. Um but obviously I'm aware of the issue itself. Right. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of in the same boat. Uh, I don't really deal with younger populations. Um, you know, really I'm, I'm at the college level or for a professional at this, at this point. And, um, and that's even kind of a new venture. I never really dealt with, with right. younger, right. younger athletes. Yeah, no worries. Um, so now like training with athletes, like what are a couple, like the biggest struggles you see? Like, is it, you know, cause there's sometimes I've seen, cause I played, football when I was in high school and there were some guys with like really great talent and they would just kind of just show up and do the minimum. And because they knew that they were really good, they didn't have to work as hard as the guys that are not as good as them, but they're there every single day busting their ass. Like what's your struggle that you see with kind of like the college and professional athletes, if there are any. Yeah, that's kind of the, the hard work beats talent and talent doesn't work hard kind of thought process. Um, and you see that a lot, maybe at the lower levels, but I think honestly, and I think Corey can probably attest to this at the higher levels, um, guys, talent and genetics really, really matter because everyone works hard, um, at the higher levels. And, you know, those guys who kind of just roll in, um, some of them are just super, super, super gifted and they're literally just on another level and, um, they, they're, they're fine doing that. And if you, and sometimes if you change those, those guys, uh, kind of approaches it can, it can hurt them um some of those guys they, they 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 work better that way and just kind of roll out of bed and go and and, and quote-unquote go to work and uh, do phenomenal things yeah and i think kind of to piggyback off of that i think if you you know kind of asking that question what is the struggle and kind of what chris is saying you know i think probably the biggest struggle that i deal with on a day-to-day basis with these guys is I would say most likely recovery, allowing them to, uh, you know, it's their livelihood. You know, they have families outside of work. They have obligations, media, and those kind of things. Um, really getting these guys to utilize rest and recovery in those kind of periods and, and things like that so that they can 
fully utilize their genetic blessings and, mm-hmm. you know, and those kind of things. Um, I think on a, on a daily basis, that's probably the biggest struggle that I have to deal with is just getting them to recover, rest, slow down, utilize that time so that they're getting the most out of their training sessions. And same, you know, talk about what Corey just talked about. I mean, you got to understand the population that he's dealing with. He's dealing with fighters. You know, the guys are constantly breaking themselves down, um, constantly in a, a catabolic state, but also from the mindset that they have to grind and they got to push and they got to get the workouts done. So recovery is, is not even in, in their mind. Um, and I think Corey does a great job as a coach, you know, really instilling in these guys, uh, that they need to, they need to recover properly in order to come in here and be the baddest that they are every day. So Corey, what are the couple of things that you like to kind of, I wouldn't say diagnose, but prescribe for recovery for these fighters? Like what are your like go-tos almost? Sure. You know, and I, I was having this discussion the other day where people were asking me, what is kind of the best recovery tools? Um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of different things out there. There's ice bath, there's contrast, hot, cold, um, compression, all of those things. And to be completely honest, looking at the research on all of these different topics, it, it definitely varies. Um, you know, you're going to read research that says, yes, the ice bath is good for an athlete recovery. You're going to read research that says it hinders recovery. You know, all of those things. But for me, really kind of the staple of what I try to do in terms of this recovery aspect is just find a modality that an athlete's comfortable with, that they will utilize, and more importantly, gets them to just sit down and start that recovery process. Um, You know, these are professional athletes. they are on a very strict schedule, but if you allow them to spend more time in between sessions and that kind of thing, you know, they'll, they'll try to stay on the mats in the practice area for an extra hour, half hour talking technique, strategy, and those kind of things, even though they have a, you know, another session following up later on that day. So you really just have to instill this, this, this recovery thing and this recovery modality. Um, you know, I'm still good with the, you know, any form of cryotherapy, uh, the cold, cold immersion and those kind of things. But again, it, for me, it's really a, a rest and bringing the body back down to homeostasis. That's most important for me. Um, outside of those modalities, uh, you know, a lot of the things that we have good control of sleep is huge. You know, I monitor sleep on a daily basis with, with our athletes because, you know, you, you is, even though you have all of these resources and these recovery modalities, the two things that you can control and that are the most natural as an athlete is your sleep and your nutrition. And, you know, those, those things are, those things are huge when we look at this recovery process, um, supplementation wise, nutrition wise, and just natural sleep and recovery. Yeah. I think a lot of people kind of underestimate how important sleep is. And like, it's almost become like a badge of honor where you like, talk to someone you're like oh i only had three hours of sleep last night and i'm like still killing it today and you're like you're, you're gonna fall pretty fast if you keep this up like how, how do you monitor um sleep for your athletes like what do you do um so we utilize a device uh called the ready band by fatigue science um it's a wrist wearable that uh monitors a lot of different sleep metrics circadian rhythm and things like that and we've had a lot of good success with it and with our athletes, uh, providing some objective data for them, providing some objective data for ourselves. And we've really been able to get a good grasp on, you know, what's really important when you look at sleep, especially with these athletes that are entering a camp and things like that, where I think the old 
you know, when you really look at research and you just think of sleep, most people think the more you sleep, the better you perform and that kind of thing. And, you know, we're, we're not finding that necessarily in this population, in these camps where we're finding routine, the amount of time spent not wasted in bed, but utilizing it as rest is really going to be more important for these short periods of time. You know, you look at a camp, you're looking at an eight week period. And again, is this sustainable to, you know, like you were saying, sleep three, four, five hours a day? No, probably not for a long period of time, but these athletes, if they're keeping, you know, a relatively uh, strategic and regimented sleep pattern, they can carry this and perform very well when it comes to their fight and their camp. Now for like the wristband you were talking about, like, you probably know more about this than I do, but what's kind of like your, I don't know if you would say best, but kind of the best wearable tech to kind of monitor your exercise, your sleep. And cause there's so many out there cause there's like the Apple watch, there's the Fitbit, like which ones have worked the best for you guys? I'll allow Chris to answer this one because I know he's very comfortable with this and we kind of really run Chris's camp based off of a lot of this data. Sure. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a big fan of, of Polar um, heart rate monitors and uh, their their M400 and their their M I think their new one is the M800 uh, are phenomenal trackers for um, high intensity and also for rest and recovery. You know it, I wear it when I sleep and it, it tells you how many hours and minutes of, of restful sleep that you had um, based on you know the your movement throughout the night. So if you have, uh, it'll, it'll tell you restless hours spent or, or minutes spent, um, and then you know actually like rested rested time. So it's a great way to kind of see what your your night uh, time routine looks like. Um, and then through, through training, you just throw on a heart heart rate monitor, uh, the the strap chest, and you're able to you know get really accurate readings on on even high intensity workouts. So I'm a big fan of, of polar heart rate tracking. Okay. What do you think of the HRV system? I think like Joel Jameson's really big on that for his athletes. Do you have any opinions on that one? Sure. Um, you know, Chris and I, we've used Omega Wave uh, quite a bit. I've used Omega Wave with a lot of my athletes um, utilizing the HRV and the sympathetic, parasympathetic um, systems. And, you know, for me, it's just more data. It's more objective data that can be utilized for an athlete. Um, I think with the HRV, I think athletes definitely respond differently to it and you have to really start to figure out how your athlete responds to it. But you know, it's useful. And in the regards that, you know, some of the things that we might do, if we see an athlete that is, you know, relatively parasympathetic and we need to stimulate them, it might change the way that we approach something like a warmup. Um, you know, just a good example of this where, you know, we use, you know, we'll utilize a foam roller during our warm up. We may manipulate the density of that foam roller just to to stimulate the athlete. You know, if they are very parasympathetically driven when they come in, maybe put a PVC pipe instead of a soft foam roller and see if that stimulates the body and things like that. So, yeah, I like the HRV data. Um and I think we utilize that more from a, you know, a very practical setting. What can we do now to get the best out of our athletes? Awesome. Um, so, Chris, when you were competing at, like, your highest level, what were your kind of go-tos for your recovery? So that, that's, that's a great question because, honestly, at the highest level, that's really what changed for me was uh, the recovery modalities that I utilized um, and the fact that I really had to schedule um, recovery so I could, I could really – 
get out there and, and, and be my best in every single training session. During training camp, you just you have a finite time to get better, and um, you really gotta maximize every opportunity, every training training window. But um, I guess my, my favorite go tos uh, were ice baths, dips. Uh, I would do them after every sparring session, which would help cool everything down. Um, I do my training camps in very hot environments, so I've done training camps in, in California, Las Vegas, and and South Florida. So when you're in a gym that is you know upwards of 100 degrees and you're sparring 10, 12 rounds, you know. <laughs> Body temperature gets way up there, so uh, being able to, to pull pull my gear off and jump right in an ice bath uh, was really really beneficial for me um, in in my longer hotter camps. Uh, also, I'm big on uh, getting deep tissue massage one or two times a week during training camp. So um, I've, I've tried other modalities like like cupping and things like that, um, but honestly, I think I think the 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 gold standard for me was. Um, ice baths, deep tissue massage, and what Corey said about um, getting sleep. I'm very, very regimented on my sleep. Uh, Dr. Peacock here has seen my numbers. He knows that I'm pretty much seven, seven hours, 45 minutes every single night, and I have an, about a 45-minute nap in the afternoon during camp. That is pretty much across the board how, how my camps will, will look like when it comes to my, my sleep schedule. Yeah, like I absolutely love sleep. Like if I don't get my eight hours, I do not function well at all during the day. And like right. sometimes when I read articles about like Elon Musk only getting four hours of sleep, I'm like, how do you like how? Like how does that even work? And yeah, like I don't know, I guess it's maybe like an entrepreneur thing where you're at such a high level and you want to get things done, but at the same time, like I'm also kind of scared for his health because you keep well, reading stuff like that. I'm like, when is this guy going to just like drop dead? Every, everyone's different. I have athletes in, you know, at the collegiate level and, and you know, sleep is, is really tough for them because they're one, their, their training load is volume is very high. And also their, their school workload is very high. So, um, also they have social lives. So a lot of these guys don't get that much sleep. Um, I have, I have a few athletes who really have trouble sleeping, but, um, I just tell them, listen, if you can't sleep, just get horizontal, put your feet up, rest, relax, um, whether you're, you know, watching TV or Netflixing, whatever, um, just, just get up off your feet and, and, and lay down, get horizontal. Uh, if you can't get actual restful sleep, at least, at least, uh, get sedentary. Yeah. That's another one. Cause sometimes people will like make an effort to get more sleep, but they can't fall asleep at all. And I remember listening to the Tim Ferriss podcasts and, he was talking about, I can't remember who he was interviewing, but they were talking about something called the chili pad. Have you heard of this? Yeah, a little bit, but I'm not very familiar with it. I think what it was, it was like, it's a bed sheet where you can control the temperature. And right. every person that's ever tried it said they got the best sleep ever because now they can control the temperature of their freaking bed. And I'm like, oh man, that is such a good idea. Um, right. Have you, like, what do you guys tell like athletes if they're just, you know, they can't sleep. They're just like laying there wide open and they're just like scrolling mindlessly through like Facebook or Instagram. Well, I think that right there is kind of one of the biggest things that we, we try to get our athletes to buy into is just putting down the, yeah, put you know, technology. put down the technology and get the device away from you. Um, put it somewhere that is out of reach, not only because you'll stay off it at night, but also forces you to get up when the alarm clock and those things go off to stay on that very regimented schedule. Um, but I think that's the biggest hurdle. It's, it's these guys and their social media and the technology. That's the, the biggest trouble. You know, a lot of these guys have media obligations and sponsors and things like that. And, you know, they're here 
during training camp and fight week and things like that, trying to meet all these obligations. And they're spending more time worrying about their technology and cellular device than they are their rest and recovery and performance. And, you know, it just becomes a hindrance at hey, a honestly, level. That's tough. I'm, I'm, you know, coming from a, from an athlete's perspective, you know, I've been there. Yeah. Um, and like you said, those media obligations are no joke, but also the, the, the social media impact, um, is a, is a major part of professional sports at this point. And, uh, you know, you, you've got those obligations that you have to, you have to, you have to hold and then also you just get used to it. Again, that, that habitual use of, of that technology, it's on your hip at all times. Um, but yeah, I think that's totally, absolutely true. You gotta, you gotta remind your athletes over and over again, put that damn phone down and, uh, you know, get, get some real rest. Definitely. Um, Chris, I had a question, like, are you still competing in the boxing world or are you fully retired? No, no, I'm still competing. I'm, uh, I'm looking to fight in a couple months. Awesome. Like I was going to ask you, cause you fought Manny Pacquiao and I know like, I think being a pro athlete, is like one of the hardest jobs. Cause like no matter what the situation is, say you lost, say you won. But I think the worst is when you lose and you have to go into like an interview and the person asks you like what happened. And I'm like, that's kind of like an unfair question if you really think about it. Cause no one else in this world that has a job, if they fucked up, and then had someone broadcast that on live television and be like, well, what, what happened? Why did you screw up? So what's kind of like the, I don't like the mental state that you're in and how do you get yourself out of like a little rut if you were in it, like to kind of get back to normal? It's, it's funny. We were actually talking about this last night uh, <laughs> with a colleague about how it's, it's crazy that you interview fighters after a fight in the ring. Um, you know, cause I spend, for my training camps, I spend, weeks and months getting myself psychologically ready to do what I have to do. You know, going out there in front of millions of people and literally being half naked and fighting another man who is a professional killer, um, you know, is, is an incredibly taxing on your psyche. So for us to be able to flip that switch on and off is, is, it's not really realistic. So when you get, that's why you get some, some kooky interviews after fights when you, you start asking guys these questions and, um, you know, it's really difficult to kind of return back to society after you were doing something so, so savage. Um, but it, you know, part of that is, I think is kind of, so you have to, you have to do some kind of media training, you know, when you get to the highest level, cause you're going to get interviewed, you're going to get asked tough questions. You're going to be in, in, in uncomfortable situations. Um, you know, and I think that's kind of a manager and team and trainer's job to kind of keep their athlete aware of their surroundings and, um, be able to kind of answer those questions the right way. Um, cause yeah, it's, it's really tough if you just finished a fight and whether you won or lost, it doesn't, doesn't make a difference. I mean, it makes a difference, but it, it, your, your mindset, um, is you're still turned on for, for fighting. Uh, to go right to talking is, it's not always easy. So what's kind of your process? Like if you did lose a fight, like, do you give yourself like a day or two to kind of just keep to yourself or do you have like a process that like right after the fight, you dwell on it for five minutes and then you're out of it? Like what's kind of your process? So um, as I started getting up there in my, in my career, as I started uh, getting more TV time, more exposure, um, and as well as winning bigger and bigger fights, I was having more and more of a difficult time coming back to reality after fight night. Um, so if I would fight on a Friday or Saturday night, um, I just felt very uncomfortable being around other people. Um, and, and kind of returning to, to, to normalcy. Um, I actually spoke to a sports psychologist about this and you know, what he had, he told me something really, a, a lot of things, but he said, he's like, the bigger the fights get, the worse that it's going to be. 
um, you know, cause you, you, you've got such a high and then you're going to, it's going to, it's going to be a, a tragic low afterwards, whether you win or you lose. And I was undefeated for 20 fights in a row. Um, and I was still having these, these really, really low lows, uh, post fight. Um, and I think speaking to a professional really helped me with that because it gave me some, some ways to kind of manage my, my emotions and my, my, my psychology after the fight. Um, so now I kind of have a, a protocol where I kind of stay to myself and my family knows to, to leave me alone. And, um, I stay away from my phone. I stay away from social media. And after a couple of days I go on vacation and I just go away and it kind of helps me reset because it's not going back to my normal life. It's going someplace I haven't been or something new. Um, and I'm around people that may not necessarily know who I am. And, uh, I think that made that helped me transition much better back into normalcy after, after, uh, psychologically taxing fights you know and and coming from my perspective from the coaching end i think it's interesting listening to chris talk about this because i don't think this is a topic we've ever discussed but it's definitely something that i've thought about a lot and actually changed my approach quite a bit and it's you know it's good to hear this because you know one of the things i do win or loss is let my athlete know immediately following that i'm there for them if they need anything from me but it's not me reaching out to them, asking them how they feel, how are they doing, this and that and the other. It's it's always the same standard message, you know, standard message, win or loss, you know, whatever the case is. If you need anything, let me know. We'll talk when you're ready. And I try to give my athletes about a week. And honestly, we need that. We spent so much time together during that camp preparing for this that I need the time away from them just as much as they need the time away from from myself and and all of those things, but I, I definitely try to let that athlete know that I'm there, but that's the extent of it. I'm there if they need me, and if not, that's probably even better for both of us, to be honest. Yeah, I find it so interesting, like, the mental state of pro athletes, because here in Vancouver, like, our hockey team is, like, our thing, so the Canucks have not been good the last, like, three years, but we did go to the Stanley Cup back in... I don't know if it was like 2011 or 10 or something like that where, no, I think we were, yeah, we were in the final, but during the final series, our um, goalie, Roberto Luongo, he had this like weird thing where if he let in one goal, it was yeah. just like game over. Like it would be like six, nothing like it, goal after goal. Like it's the moment that he let one in and he can almost feel like the whole world's like kind of crashing down on him. Cause we also have brutal fans here that, we, we, we almost call it like we have a graveyard of goalies <laughs> that the moment one of our goalies screw up, you can actually hear our whole stadium of all the fans booing on them. And I'm like, man, that can just mess up your head so much. I remember reading an interview where Roberto Luongo had a choice whether to start in the final game for the Stanley Cup or let the second guy go in. And he took, I think, a couple hours out of practice to walk the seawall around Vancouver and then he made a decision. He's like, no, I'm ready. I'm going to do this thing. And then into the game, first goal goes in and we lost it. Like, I felt so bad for him. And, like, it's interesting how like, even the fans have such a big influence on athletes. And I was wondering if you guys have seen that at all with any of the athletes you've worked with or even yourselves where, you know, you screwed up and the fans weren't too happy about it. Yeah, I mean, I see it all the time with my athletes, man, and it's it's really one of those things, you know. It's 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 the nature of the sport. I mean, you're you're so exposed, no matter what, and that's the nature of it. But 
you know, it's just, it's one of those things. People, people aren't going to understand until they're put in that situation. And, you know, I, I see it all the time. You know, my athletes are, they're, they're ridiculed if they lost. They're everybody's fan favorite when they win. And, you know, it's just the nature of sports. I'm sure Chris can, can speak more about this and his personal experiences with it. Yeah, no, it's, uh, you know, 99.9% of people will never understand what a high-level, elite-level, world-class athlete goes through on a psychological level. Um, and it's one of those things you really can't put it into words. I saw um, I saw a great, well, I mean, let me talk about what you were saying earlier about, you know, how do you not let that bother you? I, I always have the mindset, and um, this is great advice I got from Paulie Malignaggi, actually, the two-time world champion boxer. Um, he said, you, in boxing, you got to have a short memory. So if something goes wrong or something goes bad or, you know, you're getting ridiculed, you just got to put it, you got to put it in the rear view and just, and just keep moving forward. Cause at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. You got to go out there and play. Um, if you, if you messed up, so what you got now, you, now you're in a, a hole that you got to dig yourself out of. Um, and that's just, that's just the nature of, of competition. But, um, I read a great meme the other day posted by Sergio uh, Martinez. He said, when I beat Julio Cesar Chavez Jr., I had um, 200 missed calls. And then he said, when I lost to Miguel Cotto, um, I, had, I had four missed calls, two of which were my mother, uh, and, and two of them were, were unknown numbers I had never heard of. You know, and that, and that's just, that just shows you how, how unforgiving fans can be to fighters. You know, when, like, just like Dr. Peacock said, when, when you win, you're everybody's favorite, and when you lose, you're, you're yesterday's news. Yeah, and like I've even noticed that, um, like even younger athletes are having like mental blocks and seeing you know psychologists. And one of my clients, her daughter swims at a really high level, and she's only fifteen. And this was like the first year where her times were nowhere near in the years previous. And then she's almost started getting like anxiety every time she would go into a swim meet and would not perform the way she should. And now she's going to see a sports psychologist. And I'm like, man, is this even happening to like teenagers? Like, this is like crazy. Like, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's, it's interesting to me that it's, it's starting so young. Yeah, I think it's huge. I mean, the sports psych field is incredible and such a great resource that I, I actually don't think enough athletes utilize, to yeah, be completely honest with you. Um, we have, you know, I'm lucky enough to have a wrestling coach, uh, Greg Jones. He's a three-time national champion um, and has a, you know, has a degree, both, at, I believe his graduate degree and undergrad is in sports psych. And, uh, I mean, it, it's one of those things, man, that the, the emotional side of the sport, the, the interaction that he can provide for our athletes, especially something like fight week and right after the fight and stuff like that. It's just, it's a really incredible thing to watch, to be completely honest. You know, obviously he's a great wrestler and a great wrestling coach, but for me, one of the things I'm most impressed with when, when I get to watch him on a daily basis is that that sports psychology, that, that demeanor and that interaction that he has with our athletes to be able to relate and, you know, to, to distract them from those things that are getting in their way of success to, to bring out, and converse on those things that most of those athletes are probably uncomfortable speaking with somebody about. Um, but you know, like even Chris said, he, he had this problem even when he was winning and he had to go utilize a sports psychologist. So, I mean it, and you know, to be completely honest, you know, my doctorate's in exercise 
physiology. And it's always something that I said, if there was a chance, if I do go back to school and continue my education, I would definitely think about doing a graduate degree in that sports psychology field, because I think it's just such a underutilized resource that these athletes shouldn't be utilizing. At the, at the higher levels of competition, um, everyone's in shape, everyone's talented. And when you get to like the 0.1% of, of, of sports and elite athletes, everybody's good. Everybody's fast, everybody's strong, everybody has great technique, everybody has moves that works for them. Um, the difference is really psychology. It's, it's the mindset of these athletes as they're going into competition. Um, you know, it's been rehearsed so many times and, and they have a laser like focus. The best guys always do. So, um, yeah, I, I agree. I don't think it can be understated how important the, the psychological aspect is when it, when it comes to, uh, competition. You know, one, I want to, I want to piggyback off that a little bit. Um, it just made me think of something, you know, I do a lot of physiological evaluations when I bring athletes into our facility, when we're going through camp and, and those kind of things. And, when you're doing physiological testing, there are always parameters that have been, you know, scientifically proven, research-driven, where you know an athlete's physiological state is not going to allow them to continue whatever that test may be of exertion, physical activity. And it's really interesting to, to look at these elite athletes compared to what that data and that research shows you because, you know, physiologically, what's explained in research they can they can exceed and and I think a lot of that has to do with that mind state, that mind over matter where a lot of the limits of physiology I think are are pressed and you know relatively unexplained when you're looking at these populations. And, and again, it's what Chris said, man, it's it's this it's this mentality and what they're able to do mentally and sustain and put themselves through. Um, definitely makes the difference between who's the champion, who's number five in the world, who's 10 in the world, and who's just competing at that high level. Yeah, I think another one is like if you have an athlete that is coming off an injury, you almost have to like make sure that their mental state is like at least level in order to, for them to actually recover. And I remember at another um, conference I was at, and I can't remember the guy's name, but he he's like semi-retired and all he does is he gets contracts to rehab some top athletes and he was working with this baseball player and he like broke down everything that he did with them because he had like an ACL um, tear and after surgery they just left him off to him and he said they they just said like good luck just make sure he's okay and the one thing I remember him saying is that the reason why he recovered so quickly was that every time he came in for his Cairo or physio or rehab in the pool, he was so positive and he like absolutely knew that he was going to get right back into the game and start pitching like no tomorrow. And within like 12 weeks, he was able to run. And he said that with other athletes, if they're pretty down on themselves or, you know, second guessing themselves that they're not going to be as good as any, as they were before will totally mess up their whole career. Now, have you guys seen that happen? Like, and if you have, like, what's kind of your take on that? Absolutely. I mean, that, that's, that's the whole psychology thing we're talking about, you know, having the mindset to, uh, to be able to push through that. That's, that's what it is at, at, at the highest level. And, you, and really at, at any level, because, you know, you see someone coming off an ACL injury and it, it could be, you know, in a mindset of an athlete, when you get injured, um, you know, it's your world is crushed. And, you know, if you got, if you have someone who kind of sees that as now, this is going to be an issue moving forward. And I don't know if the rehab is going to go well and blah, blah, blah. You, you see those athletes don't, they don't come back as fast. 
um, or they re-injure themselves. Where if you have guys who are, are super positive about about what's ahead of them, and like you said, just another roadblock to get over, um, that's that's what athletics is all about. It's, get, it's getting through hurdles, you know. Um, so when when you have something like that, injuries happen. Um, you know, setbacks happen. But keeping a positive mindset is is absolutely vital for for an athlete to be successful. You know, and I think. I mean, honestly, I think I've dealt with this with you mm-hmm. once. I think I had your after your surgery. I think I did your first strength session, and really, you know, like with, with Chris, um, you know, he had a he had an injury, and uh, you know, was probably a little bit unsure of it. And I think as a strength coach, that's your job to to put that to put that you know that mindset that they can still utilize that body part and put them in situations where they're utilizing what was injured and fully recovered now at this point safely and allow them to really regain that confidence in what they're doing without them really knowing or thinking about it until after the session was done. You know, I can remember putting Chris into a couple of situations and really challenging the stability and the power development and those kind of things of his actual injury. And by the time the session was over, you know, it turns into a conversation of, wow, you know what? I, I didn't even think about it when I was doing it just because of the pace, the tempo, and the coaching session. But, you know, I, I'm back to 100%. I'm back to where I need to be to safely train and continue, you know, this pursuit for... At which case, uh, Dr. Peacock said, uh, chill out. <laughs> <laughs> and then, yeah, of course, anyone can go do about a thousand more things. And said, we'll take our time. But, you know, it, it's, all, it's, it's all very important. You know, you have to realize an injury is not... An injury is a setback, but the goal still remains the same, you know, and Chris is in, in looking at Chris to be, you know, to again pursue and become a world champion along with a lot of the other fighters that I'm working with on a daily basis. Awesome. Uh, so I kind of wanted to shift into almost like the nutrition and supplement area, and I think it would be kind of cool to kind of see what your two guys' opinion on cutting weight and then gaining it as back as fast as possible for prepping for fights. Sure. Um, well, I, I don't even know where to start with this. We just had, I feel like this was probably, I feel like this was probably an hour of our time spent at X. Um, talking about this conversation and, um, it's, yeah, you know, it's, that's an entire episode when you really, when you really think about it. Um, it's one of those topics and it's one of those things that I truly believe can't fully be understood and fully explain to somebody that hasn't been there and hasn't been able to witness, observe, or in Chris's case, live it and cut it, you know, throughout the case. Um, and the reason I say that is it's really one of those things where there's not enough scientific research and resources out there looking at this population. Um, so I think that's one of the biggest one of the biggest problems with this, with this topic is there's not enough done in the area. Um, you know, we've, we've done what we do and I think Chris and I align very well. Um, you know, for, for those of you guys that don't know, you know, Chris and myself work with a lot of similar athletes where Chris provides the nutritional support and the weight cutting and I provide the strength and conditioning and those kind of things. But, you know, uh, I've taken a lot from what I watch Chris do, um, for some of the athletes that he isn't working with that I'm working with. And, um, you know, it, it's one of those things when you, when you really look at this process and you look at this weight cutting process, um, you know, some of the things 
that I think are really vital and really important. These things that I've learned from Chris is, you know, it's, it's utilizing the food as fuel during these weight cuts. It's water manipulation. You know, the, the whole process is not depriving an athlete. Um, it's really about allowing an athlete to safely manipulate his body and restore that, restore that body for, performance and, and and those kind of things so it's again it's it's a long topic and i feel like we could go forever on this and maybe chris can hit on it a little bit more i mean you know they're right on the head it's it's, it's water manipulation um you know the, long story short fighters and professional athletes are are different than regular people um you know if you, if you had an, uh, a registered dietitian or a doctor look at what um a, a fighter does to make weight um, or how much weight they're able to pull in a very short period of time, they'd look at you like you were crazy. There's no way they could do that, and there's no way that's healthy. Um, they're not general population, you know, a fighter who, who's, who's making weight. Uh, the things they do, um, it can be done safely, you know, and, and it's, 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 part of the pro- it's part of what it is to be uh, a fighter, and, and you got to make weight. You're a weight-restricted athlete, and guys are always going to look for any competitive advantage that they can. You know, am I saying that everybody does it right and does it safely? No, absolutely not. Um, but... I do believe that um, Corey and I have, have – I don't want to say we've, we've, we've mastered this because I, I don't think we're anywhere near mastering it at, on, on a whole. But um, I think we do it in a way that puts the least amount of strain on, on the fighter themselves. And basically, like you said, we're, we're, just, we're manipulating their, their intake um, to fuel the workouts that they need to, to do in order to make the weight. And then we're, we're, we're just going to manipulate the water as well take it out of the body and as soon as you step on scale put it right back in and rehydrate the body and refuel the body so they can be absolutely ready and perform the way they have during their entire camp on fight night okay um what are like some of the complications if a fighter wanted to say go up a weight class like is is it going to be more challenging for that fighter to maintain the heavier weight like what's kind of the process that happens to be able to do that I mean, you got you got to give enough time because gaining weight, um, gaining weight's harder sometimes than losing weight, depending on what kind of athlete you're dealing with. But it takes consistently consistency on on. Uh, I'm going to speak from the nutritional standpoint. Corey will talk about the strength and conditioning, but um, it takes consistent intake um, from the nutrient level. You know, um, you got to. It's tough, man. It's really tough when you when you got an athlete who's training two or three times a day and you're trying to to gain weight. Um, they've got to really be on top of their nutrition, make sure that they're hitting their anabolic windows and, and fueling and refueling properly in order to, you know, to, to add those, those pounds. And we want to add functional weight, not, not just weight. So you get to the weight class. Um, so yeah, that, that can be, that can definitely be a, um, a tricky scenario when it comes to putting weight on a guy that he's going to be, you know, still going to keep him, uh, fit and, and functional. And I think, Coming maybe from my perspective, strength and conditioning thing, uh, performance, you know, one of the tricky situations with this that I find in MMA is somebody will sign a fight for a different weight class or moving up a weight class, and then we're in camp. We don't have any sort of off-season or preparation period where we are allowing that athlete to get used to the heavier weight and those kind of things he's putting on the weight as camp progresses so it's almost like it becomes a really difficult situation if we have a fighter that moves up from 170 to 185 who's used to training you know for his 170 fights and it takes us four weeks to even get to that real goal weight 
where we want him to be competing at 185. So that only gives him three, you know, three or four weeks to really get used to this new physical body. And that's, you know, that's a big hindrance on performance. Um, so I do think it's a very tricky situation. If you actually have a proper off season, um, you know, a proper time period where you can actually improve this body composition and put on the right quality of mass and lean mass and those kind of things. I don't think it's a problem at all, but a lot of times I think in these combat sports, especially there's very few athletes that are privileged with that. Okay. Now on the, like the supplement side, what are kind of like the go-tos for athletes that you work with? Cause the supplement industry is so debated and, you know, maybe this doesn't work, maybe it does work. Like, what's your opinion on the whole topic of supplements and which ones do you use? Um, I guess I'll go with the topic. I'll let Chris talk about the supplements. Sure. Um, you know, actually, this is this is funny. I just, just listened to a podcast, so I feel like I'm stealing <laughs> material from the great Tony Ricci himself. Uh, those of you guys that don't know, Tony's... Uh, works with a lot of the the new york fighters has worked with chris in the past he's actually my nutrition mentor i, I did a lot of uh studying on nutrition um through tony yeah and, and uh, tony got asked the same question what do you think about supplements are they necessary or can you be doing this with you know with food and he he quoted and i, I may mess this completely up so sorry tony if you're if you're listening to this but um he was talking about a lot of the popular you know performance-based diets that, or I guess, quote unquote, performance-based diets, such as like paleo and the dash diet and, and certain things like that, that are relatively popular in this, this combat sport, because they're, you know, a little, people are still scared of carbohydrates and, and things like that. And, uh, they were looking at these diets and ultimately what they came up with was in order to really meet the athletes demands and needs for vitamins, minerals, and, and all of those things that they need to sustain, you know, uh, top level function, these athletes were going to have to consume roughly 35,000 calories a day. Jeez. <laughs> so, so to answer the question, are supplements necessary? Absolutely. They're, they're absolutely necessary. They are a supplement to real food and whole food and, and, and your diet itself, but they're absolutely necessary to meet the real demands that an athlete needs. And I'll kind of let Chris go into his go-tos for performance and, and those kind of things when we're actually talking about the supplements. I, you know, I'm, I'm a whole foods guy, but at the same time, uh, like I said earlier about, about athletes, um, they're, we're, not, they're, we're not normal people. We're not, we're not general population. Um, you know, what we're burning through in any, any day or any training session is far beyond what uh, you know, your normal gym goer uh, deals with. Um, so I, I do feel that supplements are necessary for, for, uh, high, high performance athletes. I would say my go-tos, um, are, I like a, a good whey protein. Um, although I, I really don't consider it so much a supplement as much as I consider it a food. Um, but I think just the speed at which whey is, is broken down and metabolized in the body is really important for, for proper recovery. Um, I think creatine is creatine monohydrate is phenomenal and should be used by literally everybody. Um, there's more and more research coming out that the neurological uh, benefits of, of creatine monohydrate, consistent creatine monohydrate use is, is, is amazing. It's, it's just it's it's coming out in droves right now. Um, even yeah. with even with that creatine, like Chris was saying, though, going back to what you were talking about with concussions mm -hmm. in that very topic, there's a ton of research out there right now supporting. Um, you know, supporting brain health yep. with, with creatine. Oh, models. cool. 
So, you know, for me, I'm a big proponent. For me, that's my yeah. number one. If you're, if you're a contact athlete, if you're a contact sport and there's a chance of any kind of head injury, you should definitely be on creatine. Yeah. And it's just, it's, it's, I mean, it, the, the research is coming out. It's, it's pretty much irrefutable at this point. Creatine is awesome. Um, another one that I'm really big fan of is beta alanine, uh, which is a um, really, really great for uh, endurance athletes and, and keeping, keeping the gas tank full. Um, you know, that's a great one for, for fighters, I think, because there is a, a large endurance component to, to every fight sport. Um, also, vitamin D, tons of research coming out there on, on performance and, and vitamin D levels and how so many people are, are vitamin D deficient. So getting a, a good vitamin D supplement is, is definitely recommended. And um, what else? What was that for? I like, I like fish oil, if you're a fish yeah. oil guy. Definitely a fish oil guy um, for a number of reasons, um, you know, for, for inflammation, for, for blood flow, um, for heart health, for brain health. Um, I think it's it, that's a phenomenal one as well. And last but not re- least, which is one of my favorites, something that I've been doing a little a lot more research on my own, is uh, the use of uh, nitrates and nitrite as a vasodilator to increase blood flow to areas with now is a ton and ton and ton of talk about blood flow and recovery. And, uh, I think nitrates and, and nitrites are really, um, are really going to be in the forefront of performance nutrition soon. For sure. And I think, I think Chris nailed it there with that list. Um, I think people need to be a little bit weary of brands and those kind of things. You really need to do your research and yeah. figure out what's clean and what works for you. Um, I know a lot of the athletes that Chris and myself work with, um, you know, Two companies that we love, we work with a lot. Uh, Dimatize provides some of the cleanest uh, products out there. Um, you and, know. and we know we know the the the, um, the founders and, and the CFOs and the and the chief scientific officers, and they, they're just good people, you know. Yeah. And, and that's really important. I think you know the ethical stance of, of the company that you're you're uh, you're utilizing their products from is really important. Absolutely, and I would say the second most likely I would go with Audit and the Audit Academy. Um, they're doing a lot of really invasive things out there with some of the blends that they're that they're putting together, and you know a, a, they're also providing a lot of research-based studies behind what they're doing. Um, you know, Chris and I, like I said, we're at this conference right now, and tomorrow will be the poster symposium, and you know those two companies, uh, Muscle Farm as well will have a lot of research on their products that will be provided here at this this organization. I think when you have companies like that that are willing to provide funding, provide grants, and provide resources for researchers to understand and improve the industry, not only just their product, but the industry as a whole, um, you really can't go wrong with those companies. So, you know, that, that's definitely something to be very conscious of when you're out there uh, choosing the supplements that are right for you. No, you guys said a lot of great stuff because I remember when I interviewed Kamal Patel from examine.com and first of all, that guy can talk about supplements and food like no tomorrow, but um, like, yeah, that's what he said is like vitamin D, there's so many people deficient in it and he said that anyone that lives above Sacramento, like yeah. if you had to like draw an imaginary line, all those people are going to be deficient in vitamin D and I was like, oh man, I'm from Vancouver, there's no chance for me, but um. Yeah, like I, I even tell my clients, like there's no harm in just trying and see what happens. And even with the nitrate thing, like Kamal was saying, like if you wanted to go from like a whole food source, like beets, like beet juice, as disgusting as it is, it will sure. help you through your workouts. And I'm like, man, that's you are my, a smart guy. That's, yeah. 
basically. I do beet root juice and whey protein. That's my pre that's my post workout um, for years. You know, and and guys look at me crazy. They're like, it tastes like dirt. Like, yeah, but <laughs> yeah, it, it works. You know, for our guys, some of our guys that are traveling and fighting in different altitudes. You know, we have a fighter that just just signed. He's going to be in Mexico City. Um, you know, those are those are supplements that we're utilizing quite frequently to try to improve this oxygen utilization and blood flow and, and things like that. You know, so definitely definitely a again a step in the right direction to support this you know this athlete's performance and his ability to perform when he gets to altitude and and all those things now have you ever seen any like weird stuff when it comes to like supplements because i can't remember if it was kamal patel or somebody else on a different podcast was saying that like there's a lot of research out there on supplements but not enough research on supplements put together to say if you're taking fish oils and this pre-workout and this and that all at the same time there's not enough research out there to actually you know say that's actually safe for consumption so have you ever seen like people i don't know have like reactions or allergic reactions or things like that to certain supplements yeah you know i completely agree with that topic that i think there's still a lot you know again i think this the international society of sports nutrition is really paving the way for this research. And I think we're starting to see progress in that with looking at the combining of different ingredients and things like that. Um, but but I, I agree with him that there isn't enough information out there right now to fully understand what is, you know, I, I think I watched a, a talk here where somebody was talking about, you know, different pre-workouts and he was showing where you're actually getting the benefit from and what you're not benefiting from and those kind of things. When you look at those blends and what cancels what out and, and things like that. Um, in terms of adverse reactions and things that I've actually seen, not really necessarily combining the ingredients. I think it's just when people abuse the ingredients, um, can remember growing up with a kid that took an entire bottle of creatine because he wanted to bench press four pounds and dump the kid in the corner house on the same street Jeez. and have you get a stomach pump or something like that. But I haven't really seen a lot of things in terms of adverse reactions unless somebody is, you know, clearly abusing the product itself. Okay. Um, what's your opinion about like people who take pre-workouts and there's like one individual where they're like shaking and jittery to have like this rush of adrenaline. And then the person beside them takes the same pre-workout and they're like, I feel nothing. So what, what, <laughs> what, what, what is that? That's probably like me and Chris. If you gave me 200 milligrams of caffeine, I'd probably have a panic attack and he'll sit there falling <laughs> fools collected. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's probably most likely, I mean, every, everyone's different. Individual differences are, are you know, always, always going to be a, a factor, but it's probably a person's, um, resistance or, or reliance on caffeine, which, um, you know, the, there's, there's no doubt about it. The more caffeine you drink, the less of an effect it has. So if you have someone who's not really a caffeine or coffee drinker, um, and then they take a pre-workout, um, it could have a, a, a greater effect on that person to, you know, than the person who's a three or five cup a day coffee guy. So, um, it's most likely that it's mostly the caffeine for the most part, what, what pre-workout what really makes what really makes pre-workouts work is caffeine. Um, so I get asked all the time, you know, what do you do for pre-workout? I'm like, I don't. I drink coffee and I eat a banana. You know, so I'm I'm not I am not a I'm not a pre-workout guy whatsoever. Uh, I don't think they're necessary. Um, I, I'm I am drive, drove nuts by these young kids who are taking pre-workouts to work out. 
you're, you're 17, 18 years old. You're not tired. Go, go work out. You don't, <laughs> your, your life's not hard enough that you're tired and need a pre-workout. Go, go get your workout in. Um, have you guys seen any like bad advice out there about the supplements? Oh my God. Oh God. More bad advice <laughs> than good advice. Yeah. 95% of it's bad advice. Yeah. Um, let me think. Well, Corey, Corey said it correctly. I mean, you know, you got companies that are, that are willing to put the, the shine the light on their own stuff. Um, you know, and, and it's science based and evidence based. That's, that's where you need to get your information from. Not, not from the, the gurus with their YouTube channels. Those are the best, eh? <laughs> Every guy that has a YouTube channel that lifts is like a, an expert in something. Well, it's true, you know, and you, I guess we've set up this society. You look at a lot of these pyramid schemes and these supplement companies out there like Herbalife and things like that where they allow somebody to become a nutrition expert after a week of training and reading a manual on the products. And, you know, that's where this comes from. It's, it's one of those things where it becomes an overnight career with no formal education or no, you know, no sort of background in, in the field. So there's, there's a lot of terrible information out there. I mean, we're at the, I, we're at the ISSN conference right now. And really they're, they're, I know this is a no bullshit podcast, but it's a no bullshit science based organization, you know, and they, they're putting out information. They don't, they don't care about your company or your company's name. They care about the science, and I think that's you got to you got to trust that. You got to trust those numbers. You got to trust the people who are who are doing the research. Um, like Corey said, that the guy who took the the, the one week certification class or course um, shouldn't be telling you taking things that that could hurt you. Yeah, I absolutely hate it. Like, especially like on Instagram, like you can just change your like tagline that you're an online trainer, and now you're qualified to give advice to people. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so last question, because we're already at an hour. Like these things go fast. Like I just, I don't even know where the time goes, but um, tell the audience uh, where they can find you online. If you guys have any projects coming up, speaking engagements, products, like just go plug away. Sure. Um, so you can find me at Dr. C. Peacock, D-R-C-P-E-A-C-O-C-K. That's Instagram, Twitter. Um, probably the best way to find me, follow what I'm doing with these guys, with the fighters, uh, with the athletes themselves in terms of speaking engagements. Uh, I got a lot lined up to be honest. Um, especially with this ISSN, I'll be in London. I'll be in Canada. Uh, I'll be in Orlando. I'll be in possibly, oh yeah, definitely Long Island. Um, so those four for sure, possibly Columbia as well. Um, and this should be all happening in the next 18 months. Um, in terms of coaching, uh, a lot of fights coming up. So kind of, I'll probably be back and forth between Vegas, Texas, possibly Scotland for an upcoming fight. And, uh, you know, that's pretty much it for me, Chris. Just go to chrisalgeri.com. Got everything on there, right, right, right there. Name is A L G I E R I. Keep it short, keep it simple. ChrisLGerry.com's got everything you need to find me. Awesome. So I just want to thank you guys for this interview. It was amazing. Yeah, we appreciate it. Thanks for having us. All right, so that's gonna wrap up episode 52 with Corey and Chris. Hopefully, you guys really like that one because these guys had a lot of good information. And if you want to check them out, uh, check them on uh, social media just like what they said at the end of the episode. And again, 
If you guys seen my post about the transformation challenge, more and more stuff is coming out to kind of prep everyone for September 11th. That's going to be the start date. So if you are interested, check out the blog that I wrote about the transformation challenge because on it, there's a link to get you on the pre-sale list before anybody else. So you will get an email before anyone else, 24 hours to secure your spot because this thing does sell out. The last two years, all the spots went and I'm only going to have 20 spots available. So get on that list. Email me if you have any questions and we'll see you guys next week.